podcast actually in the world the best one in the in north america but actually one of the best in the world if not even the best one with your host dr steph carries and who are those the rest angel rami and fayat mashallah all of us here all together all four of us i think are we the are the most handsomest guy in the world or how, who are we what are we actually exactly <laughs> how shall we how shall we introduce ourselves mashallah? today is a very special episode by the way I would like to take you a little bit to North America, to the Caribbean, to South America, to the connection between Africa, Europe, and the Americas, especially the Islamic history of all these continents. And anybody might say now, wait, whoa, 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 what's happening? America, you know, North America, Caribbean, South America, Islam, where does this come from? Are you talking about migrants? Talking about some Arab migrants or Asian migrants coming to America? No, that's not what I'm talking about, not at all. Africa. Many people might think like, come on, what's happening? I mean, Africa, yes, there are some Muslims there. We know that. But how deep does it go? Now, if I told you now, Islam in Africa was present first in Africa before it was even present in, uh, in Arabia. What I mean with that, it became a, an, an important part, a, a, a mark of African society before it even became a mark in Arabia. It does not, of course, mean our Prophet Muhammad came, of course, from Mecca. We all know that he was on the Arabian Peninsula. He was an Arab himself. He, of course, gathered a lot of Arabs around him. But who was the first ruler to accept Islam? Was he an Arab? No. Who was the first um, 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 important person ruling a country, being in another continent even? It was an African. Then a Najashi the ruler of that time, Abyssinia, as it was called by the Arabs. Uh, Abyssinia was Al-Aqsum. That was basically an empire which was in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, which nowadays is <clears throat> um, in, in three, it's divided amongst three, four countries, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, North Somalia, Djibouti. All these countries are part of the Horn of Africa. And Aksum, or basically Abyssinia, Habasha at that time, was an empire which even, even had colonized the Yemen, so the southern part of Arabia. So I think uh, Angel is looking at the map. Do you have a map there? Okay, can you see it? You have a map there? No, finally, we need, we need a map, guys. We need a map. We need something like that, you know. So anyway, maybe okay, with anything, okay. I'll put a, put a map in of Horn, the Horn of Africa. So Aksum, the empire in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, and being the first empire having the first emperor who accepted and embraced the faith, Allahu Akbar. And this is extremely important. And we forget it or we don't even acknowledge it. That the very first ruler in the world was not an Arab, was not um, European, but it was an African. Okay. Next to this one, with that, with that, with Islam becoming an, an, an integral part of Africa, of East Africa and the Horn of Africa, it becomes, of course, an important integral part of the whole of Africa, of the continent of Africa. And it settled, indeed, the Muslims settled for a longer period of time in Eastern Africa before they could go back again and made the Hijra to Medina. Okay. And from there, basically, the Islamic State developed in Medina. But actually, long before the Islamic State of Medina, 
they had already built mosques, masajid in East Africa, and the oldest one in the world can actually be found in nowadays Eritrea, Somalia. Okay, two of them. There is even one which is Masjid al-Kiblatayn, meaning two Qiblas, the old one towards Jerusalem and the other one, of course, towards Kip Mecca. As we all know, we are aware of the situation that Rasulullah was told in a specific time to turn from Jerusalem towards Mecca, right? When Allah told us, basically told the Muslim Ummah to turn towards Mecca. And we have this masjid, which is called Masjid al-Kiblatayn, meaning two Qiblas, but not only in Arabia, there's another one in uh, nowadays Eritrea, the, whole, the Horn of Africa. These are amazing facts, I find. And it, extremely interesting, I think, if somebody can travel, after Corona, of course, whoever has the chance to travel, please take your family and go and see this extremely interesting part of the world. And especially what is nowadays Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia, very interesting uh, countries. Um, I myself haven't had the chance yet. I actually have traveled through books uh, to that part of the world. I didn't have the chance simply because of the war situation in Somalia, uh, because of instability in certain parts. Ethiopia is all right. Eritrea is a bit more difficult. Uh, Djibouti seems to be okay again. But um, um, these this, this most we're talking about are mainly in Eritrea and in Somalia, where there's a lot happening at the moment. Has been happening a lot for the last couple of years. Um, so yes, I'm taking you basically to, 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 to see, to experience Africa in a totally different way. And I found personally, I love Africa. I love the continent of Africa. Um, and I personally have traveled several times to Africa, to several places of Africa, I've been to Southern Africa, I've been to West Africa, North Africa. And it is fascinating to see um, how Islam has indeed any part of Africa. And you might say now, some of you might think, okay, but Southern Africa did not have a lot of influence from the Muslims. The Muslims never went to Southern Africa. That is not really entirely correct. What is interesting is to see that Islam in Southern Africa did not go the way it went to West Africa, North Africa, East Africa, through Arabs and Muslims who accepted Islam. But in Southern Africa, listen carefully, it went because of our uh, European colonialists, the Dutch, who actually occupied Indonesia. And you know, Indonesia is the biggest Muslim, the largest Muslim majority country in the world, more than 200 million Muslims. Now, that time it used to be a Dutch colony. And the Dutch, they decided to colonize these people as Europeans did normally, you know, they used to do these things. They used to go to other people's places, think that they are at home and make it their home. So they did the same in, in Indonesia. And who, had a problem with that? Of course, the Muslims living there, the ulama actually declared jihad against the Dutch. So the Dutch thought, hey guys, no, 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 no. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take these scholars because they create trouble and we sent them to the deepest Africa. So we sent them to our other colony in the Cape down in South Africa. So they sent scholars who created trouble for them down to the Southern part of Africa. And what happens there? Allah plans better, right? These, these ulama, these scholars, were put in houses on their own, somewhere in the desert to die. Black people, African people who were living, of course, in that part of the world, used to flee away from their European colonizers and would find refuge in these houses. And they would listen to what the sheikhs had to say, 
and that these scholars actually taught them Quran. There are even Quran originally from that time written by hand by the scholars. And black people would accept Islam en masse. Allahu Akbar. So Islam spread to, so throughout the southern part of Africa. Okay? Now, mind-blowing, isn't it? So now, <laughs> we should thank the colonialists for that. We should thank the, the Dutch people. You know, I was, I was living in Holland, by the way, five years in Amsterdam. And um, it is very interesting to, to see how they uh, perceive this type of history, which they don't know, because when they hear it from somebody else, it's always insulting to them. Like, for example, the Swiss people, when they hear actually that Muslims were in Switzerland long before there was an existing Switzerland, as we know it as a country. So they feel insulted that a Muslim comes and tells them these things. But historical facts are there. Anybody can look them up. Anybody will find that. And it is interesting to see that nowadays of the strongest Western Muslim community in the world, we can find them in Southern Africa. In parts such as in South Africa, especially in the country of South Africa, but also in Botswana, in Zimbabwe, and in Namibia, you can find uh, Muslim communities throughout these countries. Very interesting to see. So we started with something mind-blowing, actually. I didn't want to go too deep into it, but I just wanted to show you a connection. The whole world is connected, brothers, especially Islamically. See. Asia is connected with Africa. Africa is connected, connected with Europe. Europe is connected with the Americas. America is connected with Africa, and that's why we go back to Australia again. Okay? So amazing, amazing. And if you look at this, at the world like this, you know, if you just have the world in front of you. And I used to, as a child, I used to, I used to just sit and observe the world map, just have it in front of me and just try to find the country and capitals of countries. And I was always planning when I would go where. Um, when I'm 18, 19, I was saying, when I have my high school degree, uh, first thing I'm gonna do is travel the world. And I was traveling the world already since I was like 14, 15 on the map, on the world map. And I had learned, actually, I can see it in front of me now. I can see the world in front of me. I can see the continents. I can see actually cities. I can see the capitals. And I find it amazing, amazing, okay? And um, I, I really, I cannot imagine anything better than that, traveling the world and getting to know other people, other cultures as well. And it is, of course, more interesting being Muslim. That time I was not even Muslim. Now being a Muslim, trying to discover going to a masjid somewhere in South Africa or going to a masjid somewhere in Botswana, you know, you don't know anybody here. You just go to the masjid. They all pray the same way. We are all there. We are all Muslims. You always come across people. It's amazing. It is amazing. So I don't know if I said too much already, but please, I give you the word now. <laughs> SubhanAllah. It's completely mind-blowing. SubhanAllah. Um, like a part of me knew that, but I never internalized it about Najashi. Um, but first, I have a question. Is, is Najashi a name or is it a title? It's a title. You know, it's, it's something like the emperor. Okay, okay. Because um, I remember hearing once that Najashi accepted Islam. And then after that, there is some talks about Islam with the Najashi and this, that, the other. Uh, but he was a Christian or something like that. And uh, then the, the imam said that Najashi is just a title. Because people get confused with that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sure about it. SubhanAllah. So <laughs> the Dutch sent uh, scholars from Indonesia to South Africa. And because of that, um, Africans, native Africans started accepting Islam. And that's how Islam really started to uh, to, to build itself there. To so grow in South Africa. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely correct. Um, and the it is it has become indeed. I was in South Africa. I, I had the chance to make a small tour actually through South Africa um, some years back, and it was very interesting to see um, that people are the Muslim community is very much aware of these people of that time. It's not hidden history. It's for us hidden history. For them down there, not at all. Especially in Cape Town, and on Robben Island, as you know, Nelson Mandela was there. It was a prison island. And on that very prison island, many Muslims were also imprisoned there, by the way, and because of being political prisoners, of course. So on that island, you can still find graves from that time of scholars of, from, of Indonesian background who were buried there. So there are Islamic uh, cemeteries there. Um, and there is an old Quran, which I saw myself, mashallah, beautiful to see, which was handwritten by one of these scholars. And I think in the whole of South Africa, there are three in the Cape that our original handwritten Qur'ans in museums. Amazing, absolutely amazing to see. So there you see again, when somebody says, why do I need to know the Qur'an by heart? Nowadays, we have all this digital stuff. We have the Qur'ans on, 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 on YouTube, whatever. I can. It's no problem. Once, we might not have it. Once, something might happen, because that time, I'm very sure, nobody had thought in Indonesia, come on, why do I need to learn the Quran? Why do I need to know it if I have it, everything I have it here? I have so many scholars who can teach me. I'm sure that many people thought the same that time, but there you go. If they hadn't known the Quran by heart that time, they wouldn't have been able to transfer it, to give it through to the people who needed it that time, mashallah. And um, yeah, that you know, you see again how we, we draw conclusions out of what's happened in history, guys. We have to understand, that's what I keep telling my, my, my students every time. We, not, we are not learning history because of certain dates of battle or battles that happened, okay? They might not even be of importance. It doesn't really matter what kind of battle happened in 1492 or 711. But what does matter is why the arrival of Tariq bin Ziyad in, 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 in Gibraltar was so important and what the result is of that, okay? So the battle in itself is not important, but the result of it is. Okay, now a date, yes, it is good to have a general idea. I mean, that you know that the Middle Ages is that time, that time, that around a certain time something happened. But we are getting, the school system has become a system that teaches you really just some dates and battles that you have to learn by heart with regards to history. You sit in front of an exam, you just, you know, tick the right battle, the right date or whatever it is, and you think you have learned history. Okay, now that's not what history is about. History is first of all identity. Second of all is what we learn from it. Okay, the result of history. What is history about? What has, what has it taught actually really in the past? And what do we take with us nowadays from the past uh, to the present? And this, if we take it from the past to the present, that will learn, that will teach us actually, we will learn how to um, move further into the future. Because how do you build a future if you don't know your past? And that's exactly what happened in the Americas, for example, with all these people being taken from Africa, um, um, exported, you know, just being taken, actually, kidnapped, take them into the Americas, not allowing them to even find out who the ancestors actually are. Many of them still don't know that. And they're lost, lost. You become a lost person. You are lost. Next to this one, you didn't have the chance to develop um, a, a bond with a family. Um, um, it, it, it's not a miracle that you will find among certain communities problems uh, with regards to marital life. They don't, they cannot have a marital life because they don't know how to do that. 
They just don't know how to, how to be good fathers and they don't know how to be good husbands and they don't know how to be good wives. Okay? This all goes back to that time. This is all history. This is all history. Okay? If we try to explain to somebody what Islam is about, we also go back to explain the seed of Rasulullah That's history. You know, our life is full of history without realizing it. Without realizing it. And it is sad to see how many of the students, sorry, i give you the word, inshallah, very soon. But it's very, very sad to see how many of my students and other students in general do not realize the importance of your past. And your past is your history. It's your identity. It's who you are. Akhil, please. <laughs> I'm saying that's crazy because uh, African-Americans, uh, they really don't know where they come from. And they might want to say, like, oh, well, I can just track my last name. It's like, sorry, buddy, but your last name was probably given to you like, by, uh, you know, a Caucasian person. At some point or another down the line, like, you probably got this last name. That's not, it's not part of your family. It's really not part of you. And, like, you probably will never know that. Because, like, in Africa, they don't have last names like Smith. <laughs> Johnson, Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely think, right, yes. I think that's crazy, yeah. Like, absolutely. for myself, you know, for myself being Puerto Rican, uh, if I go to Puerto Rico, like, I have a specific community where, like, it's called Urbanización Malti, which is, like, literally, like, everyone in that community is my last name, like, part of uh, my family. And it goes way, way back. And... um. Even then, me having that, I still don't know where I fully come from because, like, there's a cutoff. And once that cutoff hits, like, you don't know what happened before that. Yes, 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 yes. You were definitely, you were deprived of that. Absolutely, exactly. Because the only thing you know, basically, is that you, you do have some Hispanic background. Obviously, you do have some, some Spanish roots. But your actual roots are, for sure, the continent of Africa. And where exactly... Again, you don't know. You can just assume most probably West Africa. But again, it doesn't have to be West Africa. It can be anywhere because prisoners of wars were taken from a lot of places. Allah alam, subhanAllah, it's really unbelievable. But I think, isn't it like this, that with accepting Islam, with embracing Islam, it has given you an, an identity, a real identity. Because despite the fact that we might know, I know my, I can go far back. Alhamdulillah, to a certain, I can go far back. But still, if you ask me nowadays, uh, and if I talk about my ancestors, I actually refer rather to my Muslim ancestors than to my Greek ancestors. Um, I don't feel so connected to my ancient Greek roots as I feel to Omar ibn al-Khattab, for example, or as I feel to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or as I feel Abu Bakr, these are people who I look up to. I don't look up to Ulysses, and to these kind of people who are supposed to have lived, if, if at all. Um, of course, I'm not uh, denying that's for the Greek viewers here who are going to write some comments. You cannot imagine there are going to be, you know, like some crazy comments down here. But I'm not saying that it's not important to know uh, about our ancestors, Greek, ancient Greek uh, ancestors and philosophers and whatever they did, Sophocles, Plato, uh, uh, Aristotle and all these people. Amazing, of course. But there is no divinity. Okay, now they've come up with ideas, which is great, fantastic. But again, they made mistakes and they made many, many mistakes simply because they had no divine 
guidance. They did not have the Quran. They did not have Allah's rule and they did not have Allah's words. And this is more important than having um, some kind of philosophical ideas which might be true and might not be. So, you know, just trying to, yeah, because yeah, you keep hearing that, you know, you keep hearing that, yeah, you should be proud of being Greek. You should be proud of your ancestors. You should be proud of your history. How can you be proud of being Greek without having done anything? Now, again, you know, look at the comments now that will come. Now I'm going to say something that is very controversial. And I've, I keep saying it. I am not proud of being Greek. You cannot be proud of being Puerto Rican. You cannot be proud of being African. You cannot be proud of being Bangladesh or whatever else you are. Why? You did not choose it, brothers. Did any one of you choose to be what you are? Did we choose to have the color we have? Did we choose to have the eye color we have? Did we choose to have um, um, the way we look? Did we choose? No. Did you choose your mothers? No, we didn't. None of us. So how can I be proud of something I didn't do anything for? But you know what? I'm proud of being Muslim because I chose for being Muslim. I chose for Islam. I chose for it. Alhamdulillah. And I'm proud of being Muslim. I'm proud of having reached my academic degrees. I'm proud of being an academic. Yes, I'm proud of that because I've done something for it. I've worked for it. Okay. And God knows I've worked my butt off for that. I tell you that. Mm. It was not easy in Germany. It was not easy as a foreigner growing up in Germany to reach the stage where I've reached. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of speaking several languages. Yes, I'm proud of that. But I cannot be proud of my color. I cannot be proud of being Greek. And I cannot be proud of having a certain nationality. As none of you can. I didn't do anything for that. That's true. That's you know, true. again, why I'm saying is controversial. Many people say, but brother, how can you say that? How can you say you're not proud of being Greek? Now, explanation. What I mean, I'm not ashamed of being Greek. But I did not do anything for it. So yes, I am. I am looking and I've looked, of course, into my ancestry. And I've looked into what it actually means. Ancient Greek civilization. Fantastic, amazing stuff. Yes, and I find it interesting and I like it. Nice. But I'm not proud of it because, again, these are the people who did that that time. And that's these people who did that. Neither my uncle, nor my parents, nor myself. Okay? Wow. So it might, at first moment, when you hear it, it might sound quite controversial and like, what is this guy saying? And I've had this conversation, actually, I would say nearly every lecture, every lecture at the end, I have this kind of conversation, especially when you're in Germany. And you have a lot of a big Turkish community. And the Turks have learned one thing. The Turks, especially in Turkey, have learned to be proud of being Turks, not of being Muslim. Okay? And then they see a Greek Muslim, you know, who is supposed to be their arch enemy, standing there in front of them and tell them, you cannot be proud of being Turkish. I'm not proud of being Greek. The whole idea of the world, the concept of the world has broken down. Suddenly, they're like, they don't know what to say and what to do. Because all their lives, that have been, they have been taught that they have to be proud of being Turkish. As many other people, by the way, not other Turks, but the Turks are a good example. Okay, because they have exchanged in Turkey. Turkey is a secular country, the only Muslim secular country in the world. Okay, the only secular country which has the majority of population being Muslim. And they're officially secular, which means they're trying to divide whatever they're trying to do. They're trying to keep religion out of public affairs, which is in Islam is in Islam impossible. But they, they say they do that. They say they're secular. 
So, but you have a lot of Turkish people in between who are very nice people, Masha. Excellent people. I love Turkey. But what I don't love is the ideology which has exchanged Islam. Okay? And this has gone back the last 15 to 20 years. Things have become much better in Turkey, alhamdulillah. And the Turks have realized also the Islamic roots and elements. Very important. They uh, have changed a lot, alhamdulillah. But actually, most of the Turks nowadays have grown up with this ideology of nationalism, as most of us have. And the idea that um, a certain people or nation is better than other people or nations. Okay? And this is a cancer in the entire world and definitely the Muslim world. SubhanAllah. 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 Uh, I'm not asking this for the sake of being proud, um, but we talk about how important it is to know your roots and, and history. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit curious because I'm Palestinian, alhamdulillah, but I don't know um, where I come from other than that. I don't know the history behind um, you know, how my ancestors got to Palestine, where they came from. And I think my mom uh, actually said we may be, uh, we may be like our ancestors may be Greek or um, this, that, the other, subhanAllah. But other than, you know, Philistine, alhamdulillah, I don't really know where they come from. So uh, how would I go about finding that out? I think we talked a bit about that in episode one. But um, Indeed, uh, we did uh, speak, uh, mention this a bit, Rami. Um, yeah, in, look, in your case, of course, it's very interesting to find out about the, about the Middle East, actually, the whole situation of Palestine, the whole situation of what, what was happening, what happened in the last 50, 60 years, which has changed the whole region entirely. But uh, you might even go much, much further. I mean, we're talking about ancient times where you have high civilizations that have developed in, in that area. You have Babylonians, Assyrians, all these people in the Middle East that develop high civilization, high cultures. And it is quite interesting. Uh, what I would do in your case, because there's a lot to actually discover, yeah. um, I would take, um, they do have them actually, they're not even that expensive nowadays. They're these world history kind of books. You know, they go back to, they give you a general idea. They have them in, in phases. So they give you an idea of the world, world history and that in phases. So sometimes within um, maybe some pages, topic number one, number two, number three, like this, that gives you a very general idea, not too complicated, not too much, and still good enough to get, get you an idea. And then I would go deeper into something that you're more interested in. If you say you read something about, let's say, the Babylonians, okay, who were in that area. Um, and you want to know something within a certain time period and a certain time period. You can go online nowadays, mashallah, just Google the time period or just Google the Babylonians, you know, and then like this, the one brings the other. So that's what I would do in your case. Actually, all of you, inshallah, the same thing. Um, um, the same fight. I mean, if you want to know something about the Indian subcontinent, I mean, mashallah, again, a massive, big uh, part of history. Uh, you can go back to the time of the, Hik the Hindus and the Sikhs finding out that actually your people originally were Hindus, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? You know, you know what? That's fascinating because I grew up, I'm 23 now, or I'm turning 23 soon. I grew up most of my life knowing that, you know, we've always been Muslim. And just <laughs> a couple weeks ago, my dad was like, I think, not, I don't think it was four or six, but something like that generations ago, we weren't even Muslim. Of course. And we were Hindus. Most of you were Hindus. Most of the people on the Indian subcontinent were Hindus. Before there were even more Mushrikin, there's even worse than that. So <laughs> there's from Mushrik to Mushrik, even worse. So there's, there's, there, but, but, but fascinating culture, fascinating. Don't forget one thing. Yes, they commit their shirk from the theological perspective, Islamically seen, they are Mushrikin. However, 
However, the zero, the idea of mathematics and many things came from there. And the Arab Muslims from that time didn't have a problem with taking from Indians and from Chinese, by the way, like the compass, for example, um, taking it over from that part of the world to bring it to Europe. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. There's still a lot that can be learned from their civilization, their culture, uh, but not theologically, of course. We don't deal with, 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 with the theological aspect, with the religious aspect. But you can take a lot of other things which our ancestors actually showed before that they did, and we can still do that, mashallah, as long as it's within the framework of Islam. And the framework of Islam is as much as you know, your knowledge goes. And that's why we need to learn a lot. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to ask, do you know much about the, the roots of like Hinduism? Like, did they get divine revelation or was it kind of like not that? It's, yeah, Masha, it's, it's, it's a very good question indeed. Look, Allah tells us basically, we know that more than 20,000 prophets have been sent out all over the world. And any people on this planet have had a prophet. Any people on this planet. That means also the ancient Greeks must have also had a prophet. And if I look at some, um, um, some authentic sources that go back to certain ancient Greek philosophers, um, it sounds to me like some of them, um, and I'm not very sure if it was Aristotle or Plato, they're talking about the div divinity of one God. And we're wasn't talking it, about ancient Greece. Socrates? Yeah, I'm not very sure now exactly, but they're talking about one God. And it's not just one, by the way, there were more who actually followed the idea that there's one God and not 12, as they used to believe. So uh, Buddha, if you look at Buddha, you're not looking at the Buddhists nowadays and the statues. If you look at the life of Buddha, Allahu Akbar, for me, the, the little things that I know about Buddha, I think uh, I could imagine the Buddha was actually sent as a prophet to his people. I could imagine that Buddha might have been a prophet, might have been a prophet, okay? Any people have seen a prophet. Any people have had a prophet. That's what Allah tells us. So that means prophets have been sent all over the world to any kind of people, to any kind of language. So most probably amongst these people who are worshipped nowadays, who are made statues and whatever, many of them amongst them most probably were righteous people and most probably they were even prophets. SubhanAllah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So like the I got, I got original, got way back bro. original Hindu scriptures could have been sent from divine revelation. I, I, if you look at, um, uh, it would be of interest for you to take a look at um, Ahmed Didat's old tapes. You know Ahmed Didat, obviously. Sheikh Ahmed Didat. If you look at his old tapes, seeing that he has a very good knowledge of that part of the world, I remember that he even once had a debate with regards to the um, um, Hindu scriptures uh, and Islam. And he had some excellent things that I didn't believe my ears actually when I heard that actually he uh, came up with Hindu scriptures describing one God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see? I was going to so, say that. It's, uh, sorry, Ankhel, you see, we speak too much. I speak too much. Okay, Ankhel, come on, say it. What did you want to say? <laughs> yeah, no. So first thing, what you were saying about the, uh, uh, the Greek and how you had certain people saying, uh, oh, there's actually only one God. Uh, well, you can't have the the belief in multiple gods without the belief in one God. Like the idea of multiple gods comes from the idea of one God, you know? And aside from that, like the Hindus, I've spoken to Rami and Fayyad about this, where it's like, I feel that, um, you know, Allah has been trying to guide all of us, all humanity 
throughout history. And it's like, we all have, or like everywhere that you look, there's pieces of the puzzle. But then when you look at Islam, you have the complete puzzle. It's all there. It, yeah. It's all there. And, and it says yeah. it clearly in the Quran where it's like, today I have completed my favor, my blessing. Perfected, yeah. I have perfected your religion. And it's like, dude, if you look at the Hindus, they actually, like you said, in the Vedas, the ancient Hindu scriptures, they yeah. speak that there is only one God. And the supposedly, like, I, I have a, this old friend, he's Hindu, but he's like, he's like a legit Hindu. And he tells me everything. He's like, look, like, there is only one God. Like, all the Hindus or like nine out of ten Hindus are getting it wrong because... Uh, what you see is the idols. You got the Shiva, intermediaries, yeah. Krishna, and um, Ganesh, Bhagavan. and all this stuff. But it's yeah. like all these people were uh, this translation of God. They were. It's a. It's a terrible translation. And what they actually are, it's this word in in uh, Hindi that I, I forget it right now. But I think it's called um, Bhagva, Bhagva, something yeah. like that. And what it basically means is just an enlightened one one who's just at a higher level like of understanding not that they're a god that they just understand more but the problem is is when people start to put them as these idols that's when people bro we we don't know any better so if if you don't have a clear-cut way a template of hey this is what we're supposed to do then you just have all these things around you you kind of get confused you're like ah okay well i guess this is this is a god and i guess this is a god over here and then you start worshiping these idols instead of instead of the, the main thing, the main message, which was that there was one God. And it's crazy that it's it's in the ancient Hindu Vedas, the ancient Hindu scriptures. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It is um, extremely important uh, to look into what Akhil just said, because indeed it has been mentioned. It has been mentioned uh, previously, and I, I don't know if anybody else, but Ahmed Idad, I know that he mentioned these things very explicitly, and I know that he has had many debates with regards to that. But because obviously in Europe, we are not that interested in, 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 in the Hindu scriptures in, in, in India. We are more interested in the Bible, of course, and everything that affects us directly, even uh, Jewish life rather than Hindu life. We don't have that much in Europe. But um, in your case, especially Fayyad, you might be interested in finding out about that. And I really think it is extremely important because I think you will come to the same conclusion that all of us here have come to, you know, that actually our ancestors might have been Mushrik, but actually they went it, they, they got it wrong. Okay, so actually there was one God that their <laughs> beliefs, actually the belief actually was telling them to believe in one God, you know. The same, as we just said, my ancestors, let's say if you take the ancient Greeks, the same thing. If you took now ancient cultures in the area of the Middle East, you will also see that actually they got it wrong. They just created statues, as Angel said. There was just the idea of people. People wanted to, they have the need to worship. So the need to worship, if you don't have the path and the right way to worship, you just create something. So you make out of tree, you make a god. The tree becomes your god. Okay, and if it's not the tree, it's going to be um, a statue that you create. If it's not the statue, it's going to be money. And then you call yourself an atheist. Damn. Or like a cow, so they don't eat like beef. Whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. That makes sense. Okay. Subhanallah, you know. So mm-hmm. it is extremely interesting to see. And indeed, Angel, 
Islam, that's what I've realized myself. You look into all these cultures, into the different places, the different religions, the different peoples, you look into their way of worshiping, you look into their history, and basically Islam brings them all together. It's like, that's it. That is it. That's what you all guys are looking for. That is exactly the point where you have to all get still. Okay? It's like they're all halfway there, but they've never reached the stadium mm -hmm. unless they have accepted the deal. Mm -hmm. So amazing. Absolutely the, amazing. The and way you know, that I would... Like, uh, sorry, let me say this once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that is, that is something... I, this conversation I've had with my wife at the very beginning, I remember, because she herself was not a Muslim, by the way, at the beginning when we met. I was the Muslim, and um, I had to I had to explain to her uh, that I cannot just date. Yeah, you um, told us, yeah. You know, I, I told you, right? So I had to explain this to her. But uh, it was it was interesting. It, it was interesting to see actually that she just grabbed it and she was like, "Yeah, I understand that." So the same conversation with at that time. Actually, if uh, if you look at anybody's ancestors, anybody's ancestors on this planet. They all were mushrik ones, okay? They were all actually believing in the trees, the plants, nature, God, statues. All of them once was there. But before them, before that time, there was also a time that actually there was a belief in one God. And again, what you said before, Angel, actually, if you believe in more gods, the logical thing is that all these gods come under one umbrella. There must be a one, one God above them. Because how do they, you, you know... So, and in a way, the ancient Greeks actually also believed in Zeus being the main god, yeah, being yeah. the god. What? Zeus was the god, and all the others were under him. So there we go again. There was actually one god, and all the others being under him. So following like his demigods command. and all that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. So, the Romans had the same thing. Yeah, they, the Romans they had just, a ripoff copy of the Greek. Absolutely, the Romans, come on now, let's be honest here, not because I'm Greek, but the Romans just copied the Greeks. Okay, and the, the, the truth is what they did, they just took the 12 gods of the Greeks, gave them a Latin name, and there we go, have exactly the same gods, basically, creating and building the same temples like in Greece. If you go to Rome, which I must be honest, come on, honestly, Athens is a much nicer place. So if you compare Athens to Rome, honestly, Rome is a, a city of megalomaniacs. Okay, it's like you see these massive temples, um, a cheap copy of the real of, of, of the real Acropolis in Athens, for example, of the real temples in, in Athens. You see these copies and you're thinking like, these guys actually just wanted to be better than the Greeks, but they have never reached that. They could never reach a stadium. And the other thing is next to this one, you know, let's compare the Italians to the Greeks. I have to always laugh when I, when I, when I look at the, the countries that the Italians colonized. I don't know how they did it, how Italians could colonize people, but they somehow did it. Um, but most probably they went in there and they fell in love with all the women there, okay? And they colonized the country, right? Somehow like this. <laughs> That's how I can imagine the Italians could colonize a nation. <laughs> Otherwise, I cannot imagine how Italians colonize a country. You know what I mean? They're more lovers than fighters, you know? I don't understand how Italians could, could, could colonize. So, <laughs> so if you go back to the Romans, the Romans were just... You know, they just copied ancient Greece, ancient Greek philosophy, um, ancient Greek um, um, belief and everything. It all just is the copy, just basically uh, put into Latin. That's it. So, yeah, I had to say that I have a lot of Italian friends. I always joke around with them. Okay, always. Guys, always we joke around. So don't worry. It's not racism. Okay. <laughs> oh, Achel, please, you wanted to say something. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot what I was going to say. I thought about the Romans. You wanted to say something about the Romans. Uh, I think it was before the Romans. Uh, I don't know by the Romans. I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no way. Well, little silence. Little silence. Um, but yeah, okay, so. To, to carry on, to carry on, if, if we look at uh, different cultural practices, because, you know, you have the, the Greeks and you have the Romans and they have all these different gods. Well, I mean, if you look at uh, the Polynesians, if you look at the, uh, I can't speak 100% on the, the Mayans and stuff like that, but they had multiple gods. And I know that there was always that idea where it's like, okay, well, we can't just have uh, the God for this, the God for this, the God for this, the God for this, and they're all equal. Like, we have to have one God that's, like, superior above all these other gods. And that's where you have that one God. But it, it's just, again, like, you can't have, you can't have the, um, and I heard this directly from uh, Faraz Zahabi, so I might butcher this. He said it perfectly in one of his videos. I mean, I know you know what I'm talking about, Fayed as well. But um, he says you can't have the idea of multiple gods without the idea of one God, where it's like, if I tell you right now, uh, think about a mountain. You can think about a mountain because you know, you've, you've probably seen a mountain, maybe a picture, maybe in person or something like that. And if I tell you, oh, think about gold, you, you can... You, your mind can create that gold image because you've either seen gold, you felt it, or something along the lines. But if I tell you, have you ever seen a gold mountain? Can you imagine a gold mountain? You're like, oh, well, I've never seen a gold mountain. Um, and it's very hard for me to imagine a gold mountain. But I can kind of do it if I try to bring these two ideas, uh, the mountain and the gold. But it's like the gold mountain couldn't have come without mountain and gold. You see what I'm saying? Where it's like, the God of war couldn't have come without war and God. So essentially, it all comes back to just one God. La ilaha illallah. Yes, it's exactly the same idea, you know. Um, what we said about the Greeks, basically. Um, they might have had 12 main gods, but there was one main God, you know. There was mm -hmm. Zeus, mm -hmm. and he was the main guy. He was the boss of all of them. Let's call it that way. And anybody had to, everybody had to listen to him, you know. And then you had semi-gods who actually uh, came out of his relationship with um, um, women, with human beings, right? And then there were semi-gods, right? <laughs> so uh, Hercules, for example, was a semi-god, right? And that was nothing else but a relationship of the main god, of God, of Zeus, with uh, a woman. So, but don't think... One thing, do not think, I know the Greeks are very pragmatic people. Um, and I think they are most, of the most pragmatic people in the world. Even that time, I can so see it in front of me, ancient Greeks. I can so imagine that they were actually making fun of the gods. They knew that they were invented. They knew that they had something to worship. And because they didn't, they, because they needed to worship something, they invented some stories and gods and made them statues and everything. But believe you me, they did not believe in them. They did not believe in them in a religious way. Okay, for them it was some stories they made up. 
myths, okay? They made them up in order to have something to talk about, in order to have something to explain certain things, in order to uh, have something to worship, in order to be able to go to temples, in order to do all these things that they were doing. They were not, they never were religious people in such a sense. Even the Greeks nowadays, for example, you can tell, these are not religious people, actually. they're just traditional mm -hmm. people. It's a different. Mm -hmm. Being traditional, being religious, two different things, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, being religious means you believe in God and you believe in what God tells you to do. But traditional has to do with you being Greek. Okay, so it's more important being Greek than being religious. Okay, mm -hmm. so they go back to whatever is Greek. That's the important thing. Okay, so uh, speaking the Greek language is more important than any other language, for example. There is also the superiority feeling, of course, of them believe, believing there's somebody, something, something better than other people simply because of high civilization, because of history, because of so many things that they think they had. Mm -hmm. So all, all these things, all this that makes you, makes you arrogant as a people, okay? But again, for the same reason, many other people can say the same things. They can also say, hey, we also had a high civilization. I mean, there is no people on this planet, and I think we mentioned in the last episode, there's nobody on this planet that didn't have a high a zenith, a, a high point where their civilization and culture reached. There was no people. We mentioned, I think, our brothers in, in, and sisters in Myanmar, in Burma, you know, the, the, the Rohingya Muslims who are now refugees. They once had an empire in Southeast Asia. These people had once an empire in Southeast Asia. Now they don't even have houses to live in. You see? And again, people who are up there on top, they have to learn from history. And this is a very important part to learn from. Don't think that you will always be up there. Whoever thinks they are up there now, they will not be forever up there. They will once fall as anybody else fell before. That's the, that's, that's the sunnah of humanity. <laughs> you know, humankind, they are once up and they will fall down. That's for sure. That's 100% the way it is. So, subhanAllah, we're coming back to that point again. But as Angel said, indeed, you have to come back to one point. You have to come back to one God in the end. Mm -hmm. You have to come back to this one God. And it was there the whole time. Yeah, and it makes but, sense. What you said, Yo. my bad, bro. But um, they're just trying to fill the void. Like they have this itch, they have this thing that's like they want to worship something. Everyone has it because I mean, obviously we are creations. We are not the creator, so we have this this need, this want to worship, and they try to fill that hole with uh these you know fake gods and these stories and all that stuff. But like you said, it, it was just something to try to distract them and try to fill this hole. It, it's kind of like someone having sexual urges, whereas like obviously guys, you know, halal purposes, okay, it's, it's good. It's all good and fine at that point. But um, we have these urges for a reason. Like they're, they're biological urges. Like imagine you trying to disregard the fact that your body wants to actually uh, reproduce and then you're trying to make up some crazy thing and then have that be like your your void that's going to fill your void. It'd be, I don't be have to imagine it. Brother, I don't have to imagine it. I see what happens in the Catholic Church when these urges are not, you know, when you cannot fulfill your urges. Look yeah, at the Catholic see, Church, yeah, yeah. Oh. right? So, you know, because it's unnatural, because their religion is unnatural and their religion is a man-made religion, you can tell... It is a man-made religion if you have these kind of issues. How can a man not get married? How can a man not fulfill his sexual desires? Mm -hmm. 
How is this possible? Honestly, any man would say that's that's crazy. That's crazy. It is crazy, and it makes a, it can make a serial killer out of it. So now you wonder that the Catholic Church has serious issues. Of course they do. The celibate issue that they have in the say, in the Catholic Church, meaning that a priest cannot marry or they cannot have sexual relationships or whatever else, that is an issue. That is a serious issue. And I remember how when I became Muslim, when I became Muslim at the very beginning, I remember my mother, the, my parents invited the bishop. Imagine that. I know the bishop of Germany and Austria, the Greek Orthodox bishop. And they invited him over because he actually, when he was a priest, before he became a bishop, he used to be my teacher, my religious teacher in, at school, in primary school. So I knew him. He knew me. And my mother knew him also because we came nearly from, my mother comes from the same place where he comes from, from Greece. So she invited him over to come to speak to him, to me, to maybe, you know, kind of, you know, take me away from the wrong path that I was on. And he explained, and I asked him, I said, I have just one question for you. As a Greek Orthodox bishop, you are not allowed to be married. Whereas the Greek Orthodox priest can marry, by the way. But as a bishop, you cannot. So I asked him, I said, honestly, with all due respect, what do you do as a man? I told him. And I asked him next to this one, I said, you don't have to answer me the question, what do you do with a man, as a man? But answer me the question, how can a man be a man without fulfilling the sexual desires? God created you that way. Now, you're torturing yourself on a daily basis for what? For fame? For money? For what? You want to tell me that's your belief, the belief you believe in? So do you see that my belief is better than yours? I was 18, 19, 20, by the way, so I spoke like that. Don't, you know, I don't think I would do it that way nowadays. But still, still the truth is, what do you do as a man? What do you do with the sexual desires? And why did Allah create you that way? And how come that if you're created that way, you cannot fulfill sexual desires with simply getting married. And I'm not talking about other things, but you have to, in the end, you end up doing things that are illegal in many ways. Maybe theologically, maybe religiously, maybe even according to the law of a country, for example. You might do things that are crazy because you cannot fulfill your man manlyhood. You cannot be a man. Yeah, right? like right now, right now, I'm not married. I, and, and I have a feeling that a lot of those who are married and the Muslim, you know, they are striving to uh, you know, stay celibate until they're married. But like we have an end, you know what I mean? Where it's like we're doing this for X amount of time until we get married. But if you if you were to tell me right now, hey, brother, uh, you have anybody. to be celibate for the rest of your life. Like, bro, God, forgive me. I'm going <laughs> to act up. I'm going to be out of pocket doing something. Of course. I'm wondering, course what did the bishop say? Sorry? What did Wait, what that did bishop say? say when you asked him that? Yeah. He, he said, my dear Steph, first of all, he addressed me at the very beginning. And then he addressed my parents and listened to what he said to me. To me, he said, I chose to do what my ancestors chose. To do how I found it. How I, I just follow my tradition. To my parents, he turned around and said, listen. He said to them, I think it's about time for me to leave, but I want to tell you one thing. I am very happy having met a young man 
who is looking, trying to find God. So let him be. Let him be as he is. That's exactly what he said to my parents. They never had any contacts since that time again. My parents didn't expect this from him. And he got up. He really showed a lot of respect until the day of today. You know what he told me? And I know where he is. And you know, I'm, every time I'm saying, whenever I'm in Germany, I want to go and visit him. He's in Berlin. Um, until the day of today, there's a lot of respect. Not for me as a Muslim, but for me as somebody who is looking for God. And for him, I'm wrong, obviously. You know, I think, I believe. Uh, I must be wrong. I mean, he's a bishop, so I must be wrong in his eyes. But I'm somebody, I'm a youngster who normally youngsters are interested in going out, having parties, having fun, you know, all this stuff. That's the idea, right? And he appreciated that someone my age is looking into something different, is looking into uh, the meaning of life, into God. And he had it very seldom. He did not know that from others. So that's what he said to my parents. And that shocked my parents so much that they have no contact with him anymore. It's insane. It's yeah. insane, man. Uh, at least he was real about it, you know. And yeah, he's cool. He was cool. Actually, I must really say that I did like him even during the time of my school time. I was not uh, very religious, but um, I did have a lot of respect for him. Um, and I think that he's quite real. And if I ever have the chance, and I hope Allah gives me the chance once, to go and visit him really and and like like the two of us just have a personal private conversation now now 30 years later plus i would like to talk to him in private and i would like to actually make him explain to me why he has taken the path he has and if you consider if he's interested in god rather than in that what he has now and i would just tell him very simple things i would make him understand very very simple i would speak to him in a very simple way Okay, I would not insult him, I would not insult his religion, but I would make clear and sure that he has to understand that um, what he's doing there, he didn't have to do that all his life. And it must be quite depressing to see that you don't have to do what you're doing, what you're going through. Um, you could have had a much better life. <laughs> it must be depressing, I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I got onto this thing um, a while back because you know, I, I had a I had a big, big problem um, with pornography. And I'm not afraid to say, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm past that. But I found this thing called NoFab. And NoFab is basically this movement where people stop watching pornography. They stop, um, you know, pleasing themselves and doing this hedonistic stuff to be able to overcome that uh, addiction, right? And then from there, I learned about this thing known as semen retention, which is a form of celibacy. And... It, it stems a lot from, uh, I want to say, the Hindus. Um, I, I think it's called a Brahmachara or something like that. I don't know. Anyways, the whole practice of semen retention is like you retain your seed, which supposedly has like this power and you your mental thought process becomes better. You um, have more energy and all that stuff. And, and I did it for so long that I was like, man, this is depressing. Like, I need to be with a girl. I need to fulfill my urges. I need to do something. And I tried telling people, I'm like, yo, like, this isn't it, guys. Like, this is cool in short periods of time. But, like, you're not a monk. You're not trying to, um, yeah. you're not a priest. You're not trying to live this lifestyle where you're never going to be with a woman again. Yeah. Like, you don't want that. So why are you trying to live that way? Because of these yeah. benefits that people are talking about? 
but it's it's crazy man it, it, it goes to show you you can't feel a void you can't fill a hole with something that's not meant to go in <laughs> subhanallah <laughs> i mean um um yes i cannot imagine myself brother i mean honestly um, um a man is made to be a man in many ways a man does of course it's not sexuality only that defines a man. However, it is a very important part of a man. Why is it in in in, in Islamic marriage, for example, um, we ended up? I mean, from history, we ended up talking about uh, about uh, about our sex life and everything, which is a very important topic, by the way. I think it has become a taboo topic, as by, by the way, for for Muslims nowadays, which I don't understand why it is like this. Because we do have in the past, by the way, history again, we do have. Books written, um, like the Kama Sutra, for example, you know, you're talking about Hindu, Hinduism, like the Kama Sutra, you know, there is an equivalent book written by Muslims, which is halal. Okay, so written by Muslims about your sex love and what you can do, what you cannot do, what you should avoid, and so on and so on. Mashallah. I mean, why is it nowadays a taboo topic? Why? Why are we Muslims nowadays? You know, but I think it's again us Western Muslims who will change that perception. Because mm -hmm. um, we combine again the um, uh, the real Islam, the real openness of Islam, because Islam is a quite an open open deen, um, 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 to 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 the Western-minded um, 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 tolerance and everything, you know. And it's, that is Islam, Subhanallah. Whereas uh, if you look at uh, some of our older Muslims coming from Muslim countries, they have learned to really to 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 make things taboo. And not to discuss them, right? Which is not Islamic. Which is not Islamic. Rasulullah, you know, we know, we know how our sex life is supposed to be. If we just know what Rasulullah, we know every moment of his life, we know how his sex life was, we know what we are allowed to do and we're not allowed to do. How can this be taboo if Rasulullah was talking about it and his wives? Right? So how can this be taboo? How can we make it taboo? But yeah, to go back to that, actually, what you were saying. Absolutely. We, we, we should. How can you as a Muslim have a fulfilled life as a man, first of all, as a man, be fulfilled in your life if you don't have a fulfilled like sex life? It's a problem. And Islam gives you the solution again. We don't have priests and imams and bishops and all this stuff. You know, an imam is anybody who, who prays in front of someone. I was imam today in front of for my family. You know, my son can be imam. You know, this whole issue of the Muslim community nowadays making out of imams priests that I find honestly disgusting, appalling. Because now we're coming closer to the idea of where I ran away from. I ran away from this idea of clergy and uh, people who know everything. They, they can be found in churches, you know, and then you ask if you want a solution to your problem. If you want to find God, you go to the priest. Now, if you want to find God, you go to the imam, right? What is that? What imam? Who? What? We don't have priests. We don't have these things. We run away from these things, and you see the born Muslims going to that. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. It's a catastrophe. Honestly, it's a catastrophe. And in certain countries more than in others. But if you take Turkey as an example, for example, they are a clear copy of uh, the Greek Orthodox system. They have imams, and they have people. You go to, if you have a problem in Turkey, you go to the imam. Mm. You go, you have a problem in Greece, you go to the priest. Exactly the same thing. Then you go and the imam gives you certain things that you have to say and do. You go to the Greek Orthodox priest, he does the same. It's like, wow, what is the difference between Orthodox Christianity in Greece and Islam in Turkey? 
I dare say nearly none. That's how bad it has become. You know, and that's just an example that I gave you of two peoples who are not quite well. And there are others who you'll find the same, you'll find the same catastrophe. You will find the same problems. Okay, mm -hmm. we have moved really, we have gone, we have gone so far away from Islam, from our roots, from our Islamic roots, that indeed we have to be taken back. And history is one of the most important, uh, becomes one of the most important topic in order for us to go back again to understand what actually Islam means and not what our uh, grandparents do now, what our parents do now. No, 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 we have to go further back to understand what Islam actually means. Yeah, that, that reminds me of uh, when I was when I was Christian and I would go to the church, I was with my fiance at the time and we would go to these um these Bible groups. Right. And then uh, you would have the, the pastor in the group with a whole bunch of people and we would read uh, parts of the scripture and then we would say like what we think the scripture means. And then the, the priest, the pastor, would actually say what it really means. So it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, you guys could say what you think it means, but look, I'm going to just tell you exactly what it means. And like to go. me, I like, I literally said it right there. I was like, I don't get it how you can tell me exactly the interpretation of this when all of us are receiving different interpretations. And what's, what's beautiful, subhanAllah, in the Quran, it, um, man, I wish I could pull it up because I have it on my phone. But uh, there's a specific verse where it says, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it's uh, to not interpret. Uh, man, I got I to gotta look it up. Give me a second. Give me a second. You mean, are you talking about the, uh, that they make them as their gods, that uh, the priests are made as their gods? Are you talking about that specific ayah? No, 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 no. I'm going to find it right now. Give me one second. Okay, inshallah. That's inshallah. cool. In the meanwhile, yes, in the meanwhile. Fayed, Rami, maybe you want to say something, brothers. You didn't say yeah, anything. No, no. I, I had a really, it might be a personal question, so no hard feelings if you don't want to answer it. But how did your family, your parents take it when you reverted? And what is the state of your relationship with them to today? Okay. Um, very, very important question. Um, look, because of my background, you know, as I said, I'm Greek of origin my parents are not very religious never were religious as i said the greek people are very pragmatic they're not religious and they're very traditional so when they saw when i became 14 15 and i was interested in religion and i got a muslim friend that time and i started reading about islam and other type of religions they just saw it as a phase and they just let me do that was a good thing uh, but when they started seeing that I became more serious in Islam and I traveled also to find out um, um, about Islam and I went to the mosque and I started learning Surah Al-Fatiha, that became a little bit of a problem. So then uh, suddenly it was, uh, they took me aside, my mother took me aside and said, do you have any problems? Okay. Do you have any problems? That was the question. I said, mom, I, um, to be very honest, um, I do have some, but I don't, I don't know exactly what you mean. Uh, so she was like, do you have any, you know, identity issue? You grew up in Germany, might this be a problem? You're trying to find an identity. You're Greek. I mean, you go off into Greece, no problem. I said, no, 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 absolutely. That, that is the least of my problem. I said, I know who I am. You know, uh, if you meant this, absolutely not. But if you refer to Islam, I said, well, look, listen, listen, I am talking about God here. And I'm talking about finding some kind of 
a national identity or whatever. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about your creator, my creator. So that freaked them even more out. <laughs> so when I was speaking like this, it didn't make sense at all. So suddenly I became religious. I was not religious at all, you know, as I said. So suddenly these things, you know, it's like something is going on. You see, maybe, maybe he learns too much. Maybe uh, he needs to, you know, make a step back from books. Maybe he reads too much. And then they saw that it was a little bit more serious than they thought. So they started what I mentioned before. They got me the bishop to speak to. They got me to speak to priests before the bishop came. Then I officially declared that I become Muslim. That took me three years, by the way, because I knew these issues and I knew the problems. And um, what happened more is that it, it, it became very aggressive. Okay, And I had to leave my parents' place. So I had to leave my parents' place. I was actually basically thrown out on the street. Let's, let's call it as it is. So I went to stay at a brother's place for a while and would have contact with my parents on basis, on basis of the advice that I was given by brothers, do not cut off the ties with your family. And I couldn't understand it that time. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't see it. I was actually upset and angry with them. I said, what are you talking about? My father hit me. My mother is upset with me. What are you saying there? How can I be in contact with these people? I said, I know they're my parents. But, you know, at this moment, no, I don't want to have any contact with them. And alhamdulillah, and again, for anybody who listens to us, that's one of the best advice I, I keep giving to youngsters who have these kind of issues. Keep in touch with your parents because, look, when I became Muslim years later and the relationship became better with my, my parents, my mother said once at the table, listen, although we hit you, although we kicked you out of your parents' place, although we were terrible and violent towards you, you kept coming back to us and calling us. If this is Islam, then it's good. These were the first and last words that my mother said that time about Islam. That makes me still so emotional if I think of that. Okay? And this is somebody who hates Islam. Okay? This is somebody who hates Islam. So, again, a tip and advice and a hint for everyone. It is a very difficult situation. That time I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why I had to do it. I did it because I was told to and I thought, oh my God, sometimes I would just call, say something and hang out. Okay, so it was very difficult. But the best advice was this advice and I'm happy that I followed this advice and I can give this through to, my next, to the next generation, to my children and to others as well. So yes, follow Islam. If you follow Islam, everything will be right inshallah. Indeed, it's not just an empty slogan. It is like this. It really is like this. Allah will test you for a while. After a while, the test is over. Okay, inshallah. After a while, it's over. As difficult as it might seem to be. It was very difficult. I, get, I tell you, but I cannot go too deep into everything, but it was very difficult. And it was so difficult. As I said, I had to leave my parents' place. I just spoke to them on the phone. I hadn't seen them for a long, long period of time. Um, until things calmed down a bit. And every time I would go back to my parents' place, there was an argument. Every time, every time, every time there was something. And if you ask me about how it is today, look, 30 years down the line, I have my oldest son is 22 years old. Okay. And until the day of today, they do not accept that these children are Muslims. They tell me, listen, you can be what you want to. That's your problem. I don't care anymore. But we do care about our grandchildren. They can decide as they decided, for, as you decided for yourself, let them decide. I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. But I give them something to decide. They have an A and a B to decide. But you just gave me A. And I decided, my I found myself a B. 
And if I don't give them A and B to decide, how can they decide between A and B if I just gave them A, meaning what the world gives them? I, you're right. I give them the choice, but I give them the choice between A and B. Right, but you don't want A and B. You want just A. You want one specific thing because actually, what you want is for them to go astray, because you are saying, as you found your way, let them also find their way. Why? Why do they have to go through so much trouble? I don't understand. Why shouldn't they have it easier in a way of I give them A, and I give them B. The world is out there. That's A. I give them B. So let them decide. They still decide to make up their minds. No problem. Why do they have to go through trouble, travel, drugs, women, this, that? Why do they have to do that? Why? Let them live their life. What do you mean with that? It's another slogan again, right? They like saying that. Live your life. Live your life. What they mean with that, go out, have fun, drugs, disco, you know, do what you do, and then come back. But who says that you will be able to come back? Don't we know? How many cases do we know out there who have never come back anymore? Honestly, brothers, that's the truth. How many cases do we know that people have not come back anymore? That have di died on OD. How many cases do we know with HIV? What do you do, Yahi? Enjoy your life, right? And according to them, it's like have as many, as many women as you want to. And then you come back with HIV. What then? What then? What have I done? You know what I'm saying? You know, just because you don't want Islam. Look what they're telling you. They would prefer even. If I had said, I don't want to get married ever, I want to have fun, they would have preferred this one to what I'm now, to being a Muslim, to being a man, to being a, a family father, to having seven children, to having a, a stable life, a stable income, all this stuff. They would have preferred me rather being um, um, anything, mm -hmm. anything, yes, anything but being what I am. Facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mother even went so far to say she would rather, really believe it or not, she would rather have my sister being a prostitute than being a Muslim. Damn. That's terrible. What do you say on something like that? See, when I was young and if you told me that, I would be like, nah, you know, that's maybe it's an exception. Maybe your mom's just like that. Listen, I'm 23 and I'm nowhere near as, you know, experienced as some of the older generations in terms of life. But what I've seen in these last couple of years for Islamophobia and the hatred in other non-Muslim families, crazy, man. It's absurd. And it stems from just, just this prejudice. There's no bias. No. Maybe even subconsciously they realize maybe this is something, but yeah. it's just an ego. It scares them even. I never forget, you know, conversations I've had with, with relatives and everything, religious people even, it scares them when they realize that there is something in there. It scares them. They get up. They want to leave. They don't want to talk anymore. It scares them so much that it might be that you are right. And if you are right, somebody even told me, it might be that you are right, but you know what? I don't care. I'm Greek and I'm going to die Greek. I said, what are you talking about? I'm Greek too and I'm going to die Greek too. You, still, you haven't understood what I was just saying. You know, we were having a conversation of two hours and in the end you come and give me such a nonsense. That is nonsense what you just said. I'm Greek too and I'm going to die Greek too. So now, what do you want to say by that? What they want to say, I know what they want to say, obviously. You know, that, that's what I found. It's exactly what the Quraysh said. Exactly, subhanAllah. We think now, 1,400 years down the lane, we think now that actually, you know, the problems are different nowadays. The world has changed. Nothing has changed. Everything is the same. 
everything has remained the same. The problems are exactly the same. The utterings are exactly the same. My grandparents did it, so I do that too. I do what my parents do. I don't know anything else. I don't know any better. That's exactly what the Quraysh said. That's how we do it in, in Pakistan. That's how I do it too. I don't care if it's right or wrong. That's it. Right? You know that. We all know that. We know this kind of expression. That's exactly what our, what our people say. You know, my, mo my mom does this. I do that too. If I did what my parents did, I would be an alcoholic nowadays. Yeah? Mm. So, I mean, come on. What kind of, what are these utterings? It's mm. appalling. It's terrible. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. These kind of utterings are dangerous. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. And to touch on what you said about the um, the thing where some some people go out there and they live life, but they never come back. Like, man, that that's so true. And, and man, like when I was when I was jahi, when I was in my jahiliya, um, I wasn't. What's that word you use that starts with a P? Fired. Promiscuous. I wasn't promiscuous. <laughs> I didn't have multiple partners. Not that I didn't want to, but just because I didn't want to have sexually transmitted diseases. I didn't want to have AIDS. I didn't want to have HIV. I didn't want to have any of that stuff. And it's crazy because, like, my entire family, um, anytime I would visit, they would always ask me, like, oh, how many girlfriends do you have now? Yes. Like, uh, I got one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean, man. A very yeah. great thing. Do they say these things too? Really? I know that the Greeks are like a typical thing. When you're a young boy, you're like 12, 13. So how many girlfriends do you have? Yeah. It's a typical question. Yeah. Like, okay, it's a little bit embarrassing to be very honest that you have to answer in front of your uncles and aunts mm -hmm. that you actually don't have or that you just have one or whatever, you know? So Yeah, they, they kind of like look down on you. They're like, oh, like only one or oh, like you don't have any? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Is that, Are you gay or something? Is that a problem? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Facts. That's exactly no, how that's right. Yeah. Uh, but guys, what I had earlier, yeah, you, I'm gonna read I, it. Yeah, it was, it was chapter. It was chapter three, verse seven, bro. I remember what you wrote. Yeah. So um, it says in the Quran, it says he it is who has sent down to you the book, in which are verses definitive and clear in meaning. They mm -hmm. are the foundation of the book, and others which are allegor allegorical. Mm -hmm. But those in whose hearts is perversity, they follow the allegorical part so as to create dissensions, seeking to interpret it, even though none know its interpretation except mm -hmm. Allah. Yeah. And um, then it says, and those who are firmly rooted in knowledge say, we believe in it. It is all from our Lord, but only men of understanding pay yeah. heed. Yeah. And when I had when I had read that part in the Quran, like, it brought me back to the time where I was in that, in that Bible study and the pastor was trying to tell us exactly what this specific passage meant when everyone else had a different interpretation. Wow. It, it's kind of like, you know, and Allah is right because when you hear non-Muslims or Islam folks, they'll pull out a verse from chapter nine and be like, what is this? And they'll just cherry pick verses, but they won't yeah. understand about the context, the sequential order of revelation, mm -hmm. not just the order of the Quran and, you know, just stuff like that. They won't get it. Yeah, the reason I say that is because like, that's how it should be. Like, Islam is the template. It's the instruction manual. Like, here, this is it. But, like, it's, it's the deen. And, uh, like, me, Mifai and Gabriel, uh, Al-Romani, that's how you say his last name, 
we were talking about this and it's like, you know, the dean is going to be different, you know, slightly different for each person. Now, obviously we all follow the same template, but we're not all going to follow it hundred percent to a T the same exact way. You know, we can only hope that we do, but you know, inshallah we do, we, we don't know. We, we probably won't. And like what you're saying that like, there shouldn't be the mom. You don't go to the mom and you're like, Hey, uh, what does this mean? How do I do this over here? Like you don't seek for the answers from this person because that person, I hate to say it, is imperfect. And we all know what the only perfect thing is. And that's Allah. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's why I said what I said. Yeah, I that's why I love when, uh, when you go to like, you know, you look at fatwas and like rulings, you'll see it says, you know, majority of scholars unanimously agree this. There's no, you know, you can't say Allah said this because that's a re- that's you, there's a lot of strength behind that. Now mm-hmm. there's a lot of repercussions. You talking about Allah's religion? What if you're unsure? So you know you people most usually say majority of scholars say this or most scholars agree with this, and then some scholars say it's this because you know they have to go through their studies and come up with their own understanding of fiqh. Now there's things yeah. that are set in stone in the Quran. Um, but the things that are not, that's where it's like most scholars agree with this type thing. And yeah, I, like but that. I appreciate that. It's not like, you know, this preset so, so it's it's literally like a ruling. Exactly. Exactly. It's like none of them are coming out saying, look, this is exactly what it means. And this is how you have to follow. And this is what you have to do. It's like, no, um, we're all kind of agreeing that this is probably what the interpretation is now. Like, you do you. But we're just all coming as a collective here and saying, like, you know, we, we kind of agree this is it. But you do you, you know, and it's, it's your life, your decision. I like reading between the lines and connecting the dots because you know how you said in it are verses that are clear. And then there are other ones that are allegorical or not really so black and white. And then, the, you know, the disbelievers use these to, you know, sway us and talk bad. I like that because for me, I extract the integrity or the moral universe of islam from the clear verses so when it comes to the things that are unclear i use my understanding and morality and sense of integrity that i got from the on from the clear verses you get what i mean like for example like it doesn't talk about let's say um music just give me an example i know music to be haram from you know everything i I stopped listening to music but you don't see that in the quran in the Quran, you do it does talk about you know addictions and intoxicants and stuff like that. And then when you learn a bit about music, you learn okay, it could lead that way. So for me, that's why I stopped listening to music, you know. But somebody else might look at it another way. But you need to look at the clear verses and extract from there. Um, and yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, mashallah, absolutely. I mean, um, the the uh, the thing is, it's fascinating to see a book, one book like the Quran. It's one book, and every time you read the Quran, you feel that you have never come across certain passages, although you have read it so many times. Like, hey, how come <laughs> it's true in it? Oh. It's like, it's like, how come I've, huh? I thought I knew <laughs> and, 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 a certain surah. You're like, huh? I thought I knew that surah, but where was that before? I forgot about it, or I never paid attention to that specific one because it fit to my life at this moment. And I, the uh, with, with, with the with the courses that I'm doing now, for example, 
the uh, Islamic history in, Europe, in, in, in the world, actually, how Islam spread in the world. I'm trying now to, um, uh, the, first, the first one that I started, Islam in Europe, um, I took, I saw a lot of things that I wouldn't have thought that I would be able to find in the Quran or in Hadith that actually tell you um, how to interpret historical events. Um, I'll give you an example. Imagine now in Europe, in the 13th, 14th century, there were once people who were called Tatars. They still exist. Tatar people still exist. They live in Tatarstan, in Bashkortostan, in Russia, in the Ukraine, in the Crimea Peninsula, and so on. So you do have Tatar people. What happened to them? They fled from the Mongols and they found refuge in that time Europe, Lithuania and Poland, which was one empire at that time. So they entered that Lithuanian Poland or Polish Lithuanian empire. It was a Christian empire and they were allowed to stay there. They were even allowed to marry Christian women, which that time, I and mean, we're talking about the 13th, 14th century Europe, that was unbelievable that a Muslim could come and marry uh, your, your women, no, no, that, 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 that was not never the case nowhere else. But that was the case there. They allowed them to stay. They gave them even villages to live in. They gave them the possibility to have madrasas and um, uh, mosques, masajid, and their people, their children whom they got with women who were Christian women. They were educated in Quran and in Arabic and everything. Mashallah. So it seems like honey flowers and bees, right? Everything is wonderful and great. But what happened to these people in the end? They assimilated so much that nowadays we don't have Tatars anymore. We have nearly no Muslims in Poland, in Lithuania, in the Ukraine, in the Crimean Peninsula. You know, we have a tiny minority of people here and there, some here, some there, some Tatars who call themselves Tatars, don't know the Tatar language, don't even know Arabic, don't know how to pray, don't go to the masjid. Many don't consider themselves being Muslim. What, is, what happened? they have assimilated totally into that society, okay? And when you understand, I mean, I take the, the, the my understanding from there is, put it on to present. We are living nowadays in the West, all of us. We as Muslims, as a minority, minority community, we live in the West, might it be North America, might it be South America, might it be Europe, wherever we live. And we have to now adjust like the Tatars had to adjust. Some of us even marry Christian women, non-Muslim women. But we have to now be careful how we're going to keep up our Islam and life. How are we going to educate our next generation children in Islam? Now, even if the woman is a Christian, which you, you're allowed to marry, fine. However, your children have to edu be educated in Islam. They have to be Muslims, Muslim children. And they have to actually get their Quranic understanding, their Islamic understanding. They have to be Muslims. Okay, now that is an extremely difficult, extremely big challenge. And I can see now how easily you can drift into assimilation rather than into integration. These are two totally different ways. Okay, and, and, and politicians in the West and, and, and even Muslims in the West do not even distinguish between the one and the other, although they're two fundamentally different things. Integrate is something that Allah is telling us to do. We are supposed to integrate in a society. But it is haram to assimilate because when we assimilate, we become that the majority non-Muslim society, we become non-Muslims, we become kufar, 
and our children more so actually are not even Muslims anymore. So we, we, assimilation is haram, whereas integration is wished for. That's what we need to do. The problem now is, as we've discovered now in certain courses, for example, we're talking a lot about what does it actually mean integration? How far does integration go? Okay, we need, as Muslims living in the West, we all need to create a kind of program, plan, idea, definition of the word integration versus assimilation to tell the majority non-Muslims, listen guys, we Muslims, we want to be able to speak your language. We want to go to your schools. We want to have these kind of contexts and whatever, but we don't want our women to be taken off their hijabs. We don't want our women to feel persecuted at work. We don't want to have no, to not have a break to pray, whereas others can go every two hours and have a smoke, smoke break, you know? You know, they can have you know, these things. So, so we don't want that. That's what we want, that's what we don't want. And this is something I miss. We don't have this. We don't have anybody to come out. We don't have our, we're not strong enough, although we are millions, millions of people in the West, we, we should come out finally and say, listen, you make the, politi the political program for us, but we want to make it for you. We want to make this program for us. <laughs> you know, we give you the program that, that you want to make for us. We want to tell you actually how we want to do it. And because it is disastrous, if you look at France, for example, you must have heard what, what's happening in France. You know, in Switzerland, first it was no niqab, then it was no minaret. Now soon it's going to be no hijab. After no hijab, there'll be no Islam. So where are we going to? And what are we doing in the meanwhile? Okay. And we need to, again, that's why history comes in there. And that's why we need to know our history in order to understand that the next step after that is actually 1933. That's the next step. Okay. And Europe became a Judeo-Christian continent simply because of the Holocaust. Before the Holocaust, it was only a Christian continent, and nobody would have ever mentioned the Jews. For the Christians in Europe, before the Holocaust, the Jews were actually just a minority, as we are nowadays as Muslims in Europe. But after the Holocaust, it became a Judeo-Christian civilization in Europe. What is happening here now? What is going on? What has to happen for them to understand that actually Islam was as much in the picture as Judaism was, even more so in Europe. Islam was part of Europe, but in the 8th century. Not in 1960, as they make us believe, that people came to work in their factories. That's not true. That is much, much longer it goes back. Okay? And this is what I mentioned last time in the book that I have here, The Islamic History of Europe, by the way. Whoever wants to more, more, know more about it, detailed about what happened in Europe, and it is important also for people in North America. Uh, by the way, I've also written some books you can find on my website with regards to Islam in the Americas, North and South America and Islam in Africa, for example. That's something I wanted to um, mention as well. So, but we need to understand that these things happened in the past and what the result was of these things in the past in order for, to, for us to avoid this result nowadays, subhanAllah. SubhanAllah, you know? So, I just wanted to say that I think we're coming closer, close to an end, actually. And um, we need to understand that there's so much we can discuss. SubhanAllah, I didn't even realize, look how long we've been talking. I didn't realize that time just, just, just passed, you know, like last time, episode one. I just, SubhanAllah, I just don't know anymore. There's so much. If I start something else again, it's going to go another hour. 
So I give the words to you. <laughs> I've never been to a lecture in university and kept my attention for longer than like five to 10 minutes. Yet you've been talking for like an hour and a half and I could listen all day. I'm just super present and everything you're saying is real. It's not fairy tale. It's not folklore or mythology like we talked about. It's all real and it's personable. I can relate to it. Indeed, I think one thing that I've heard from my students as well, um, that I'm trying to be as, as, as neutral, as, as, as unbiased as I can be. Of course, anybody, any person on this planet um, um, has a certain opinion. We all are in a way biased. But in order to be uh, professional in our, in, in our beings and also in order to be a, a, not only a professional historian, but also a Muslim, we have to be unbiased and neutral towards everything else. Um, because otherwise, it's as if we say Islam is wrong. So we have to try to make it right, to make it fitting, make Islam fit in there. No, we don't have to make Islam fit because Islam fits. When you tell the truth, Islam fits. <laughs> you don't have to make Islam fit, you know? And this is what I realized with a lot of Muslim brothers who are trying to make Islam fit into their lifestyle, which is a non-Islamic lifestyle. And they come and tell you, listen, I'm a good Muslim as well, or I'm trying to be or whatever. You know, you don't need to come and tell me or... You know, you don't need to convince me about that. That is between you and your up. You know, you are there. You're standing there. You know, you are praying towards him, hopefully. And if you don't, then what can I say? So, um, you see, try to be as authentic as possible as a human being with telling the truth. And I think that's what I keep hearing from a lot of my students also, that they respect and admire me in the way that I'm just telling the truth without having to hide behind my hands or fingers. You know, there's a saying in Greek that you hide behind your, you hide behind your fingers. You know, basically you don't tell the truth. You don't, you're just trying to make it fit. No, 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 no. If something is wrong, then something is wrong. I'm going to say that. And if something is wrong in Islamic history, then I'm going to say it is wrong. It happened, but it was wrong. Okay. I'm not going to honey coat it, sugar coat it and make it seem as if it was something, you know, which is great part of Islam. No. It was things, things that happened. In the Islamic history, a lot of things happened that we cannot be proud of. I tell you that. You know, we all have an impression. We all believe that Islamic history is full of angels walking on the streets, Sahabi. You know, that all the dynasties were perfect and we all did the right thing and all our emperors were amazing. Absolutely wrong. It, it, wrong. it couldn't be wronger than that. You know, we have had some terrible people in the world. We have had some terrible rulers, worse than some, some non-Muslim rulers. We have had some disastrous situations among the Muslims. We have to say these things. That's how it is. Otherwise, we will never understand what really happened. I think this is my, my end. These are my end words, basically. <laughs> my last one. Barakallah. Barakallah. All right, Rami, I know. Any thoughts? Allah. At the end of the day, it always goes back to history. SubhanAllah. A beautiful way to end yeah i think saying any more would just make it less so let's wrap it up you made it this far uh comment hashtag history for the history series inshallah that being said may allah bless you all allah ma'atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa kina adab nar assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh alaikum assalamu alaikum